I grew up in a small business. My dad came over from Italy and had a landscaping business with my uncle. You know, it was my first job. And you learn something when you're working for a small business, family-owned business, because you really care for it in that way. And I think one of the things that has served me well in my career is wherever I'm working, I kind of bring that small business mentality. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get smarter and stronger. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of nonprofit MMA Global. That voice you hear at the top, that's Dominic DeMeglio. He's the head of marketing and data at Paramount Streaming. He's a CMO for Paramount Plus and Pluto TV and has been with CBS and Paramount in various roles for the past 18 years. Today on Building Better CMOs, Dominic and I are going to talk about competing with TikTok for viewers' attention, because there is a changed landscape out there, the science of making an entertaining trailer, how to lead with empathy, and so much more. This podcast is all about the challenges that marketers face and how to unlock the true power that marketing can have. We also look at what does real leadership look like and what do you most effectively do to drive growth today? Dominic Demiglio from Paramount is going to tell us right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. This is Greg Stewart here. We're building better CMOs, and I'm here with Dominic Demeglio from, well, Dominic, you're not really just Paramount Plus. I know you're from Paramount Plus, but it's really a much bigger role within the company mm -hmm. because I think you handle all of your CMO, but also head of data for all streaming services, of which there are many. A few. Yeah. So my role, I head up marketing and data for Paramount Streaming, which its two flagship services include Paramount Plus on the SVOD side and Pluto TV, the world's largest fast service. So that's free ad supported television. And I sit across marketing and data globally for those two services. What a fun place to be in streaming today, right? I mean, I don't know. I can't think of a more exciting, probably more intense, <laughs> maybe more complicated category right now. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, listen, first and foremost, it is an exciting space to be in. I mean, just every day brings a new adventure, constantly pushing for innovation, both us at our competitive set. But it's it's definitely intense. I mean, there's a lot of services out there. There's a lot of great content out there that we're competing with. And so we're really focused on how we continue to take share out of the market, which we've been doing. And how do we break through as a brand, both from a Paramount Plus side and a Pluto TV side, given the crowded landscape where everybody's got great content? And how do those brands stand out and mean something for consumers? Yeah. And it's not like you're not up against some insignificant people. I mean, I'd say at least once a week, it appears that Bob Iger is talking about Disney's streaming strategy. So if the CEO of one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world is taking the time to bring the world up to speed and Wall Street Journal is writing about that, this is a big deal. 
Yeah, we think so. I'm obviously biased working and streaming, but I do think it is an important part of any entertainment company's future. It's not the only part by any stretch. I think, frankly, what we've seen work really well for us is we take this one paramount approach is really pointing all of our assets working together in harmony, whether that be how we support theatrical titles through their windowing life cycle to the way the company overall supports our streaming initiatives and launches, really trying to point everybody in the same direction and to to really lean into our advantage because we're not singularly streaming. And so having such large reach on traditional television, having a huge theatrical business that's been pumping out a ton of number ones the past few years, and then everything in between in terms of our ability to reach consumers. I think the other thing that you know the company probably doesn't get recognized for as much as it should is just our reach and engagement in social. You know, The company for many years has really been working on nurturing fandoms around our key IP and franchises. And that certainly Certainly, as we have titles for streaming that sort of appeal to those fandoms, they're already engaged and ready to sort of jump into the next adventure with us. I was going to kind of get into the broader streaming, but let's talk a little bit, just maybe just anchor for people a little bit about what is happening at Paramount. Okay, so you have Pluto, you have Showtime, you guys did a big merger. I mean, there was a bundle package with Showtime and Paramount Plus, but you've now, you've really moved them. Why is that accretive? For customers, like why would customers kind of care at some level, although I assume at some point I don't need to have 13 apps on the bottom of my TV, I guess. And then why'd the business make that decision for Paramount's interest? I'll mention one thing, but you mentioned the 13 apps. We tested a bunch of things in terms of marketing lines for the new sort of integrated Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. And one of the things that rose to the top was one last password. And you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will say, at least you guys have made it easier, the QR codes, because I got to tell you, it was the most frustrating thing in the world to have to type in your email address and a password off of a remote that was never designed to do that. But thank God you all fixed that. Let's talk about more complicated issues for consumers. Yeah, why put them together? We worked our way to this moment. So we had various degrees. First, we had a billing integration bundle between Paramount Plus and Showtime a few years ago. But you still have to use separate apps. But that was like the first you know, step in the process. And that was successful. Then last year, around this time, we launched the next iteration of that, which is we ingested all of the Showtime content into the Paramount Plus experience. And then we saw that sort of supercharge the uptake of the bundle tier. And the thing we also observed there is people that were in those bundle tiers, they streamed more, they were more engaged overall, and ultimately they retained better. So they converted off their trials at a higher rate and they stayed with us for longer. And so that's the accretive part. We're really seeing good and positive impact on our lifetime values based on bringing these two things together. And so this year, we essentially put it together. And now instead of having a premium tier and a bundle tier, we put the two together in the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. And then also, importantly, at the same time, stopped offering Showtime OTT for sale on a standalone basis. So now this is the streaming home of Showtime as Paramount Plus. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. I guess this is going to go the same way that sort of the cable companies themselves went at some point, right? Is that there's just whoever can produce the best ARPU ends up consolidating the rest of the marketplace. Isn't that eventually what's going to happen? Well, ARPU's a hugely important component, but I think the key to profitability, and I think we're all focused on the path to profitability in streaming, is ARPU times scale. Because of the investment you need to make in content, as well as marketing and technology, it's not just about ARPU. You also do need the scale to be able to support the investment required for streaming. And it's an intensely competitive space. So I don't know. Listen, I've seen some of your competitors. I've talked to some of the CMOs of the, some of those businesses and you know they're a billion dollar budget for a business that barely existed five years ago. 
that's a crazy amount of money. It's quite significant. Yeah, no, it is, it is significant. And I think while I wouldn't say we have budgets on par with all of our competitive set, I think, you know, there, there are certainly some out there that spend far more than other services. The two things that I would say is, uh, you know, we're really focused on efficiency. I'm pretty sure every marketer is, right? How do we make our dollars mm-hmm. work as hard as possible for us? And I think the combination of sort of where our budget sits competitively, coupled with the fact that we've signed up more new subscribers for streaming in the past two years in the US, you know, shows that that combination is working. We are effectively taking share from the market at an efficient marketing spend. And I think we're also seeing that happen globally in our international markets. Hey, Dom, actually, how big is a Paramount Plus Paramount Streaming? Like, I don't know if I have a real sense of scale of the, I don't know if you look at a share of business. And listen, I realize I'm into an earnings affecting question here, so I want to be careful. But <laughs> what can you tell the audience about how big this business is for you all right now? Sure. I mean, I can share some things that we recently shared with the market, which was, you know, in the past quarter, Paramount Plus grew revenue 47% year over year and uh, now reaches 61 million subscribers globally. Wow. What I shared earlier, Paramount Plus has been the fastest growing streaming service in the US for the past two years in terms of share of new signups. So we know we're growing fast in terms of taking share. We are reaching global scale. Wow. And then I think when you match that up, with, as I mentioned before, the number one fast service around the world, Pluto TV, that just continues to grow exceptionally fast. The two services combined to grow total viewing hours 35% year over year this quarter. And that gives us an amazing ecosystem of free and pay. I mean, these Pluto TV and Paramount Plus uh, really complementary to one another. We see what may surprise a lot of folks, users that are engaging with both. I think, you know, People sometimes tend to think that like you're either an SVOD person or a fast person when the reality is, as we look across both services, we have a high degree of overlap and that, you know, people are interested in different content and different experiences. And Pluto has an amazing lean back curated approach to all of our channels. And it's just a really great complement to Paramount Plus. And I do think it gives us a competitive advantage in having both free and pay in the marketplace. And then I mentioned the other thing too, to keep in mind here is that Paramount Plus has both an ad supported tier and an ad free tier. So then when we look about scale and advertising, you take Paramount Plus's ad supported tier plus the massive scale we have in Pluto. And now you have a really amazing opportunity in terms of ad market. Yeah, that's a nice sort of product segmentation strategy. Doesn't matter how you get there, you got to get scale for entertainment business. Absolutely. That's what I assume going to have to know, you know, suggest that it lays the platform for you being able to invest in even better content, which only builds a platform more. So good for you guys. Wow. I didn't know it was that big, Dom. It's impressive. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, what's also, though, I think equally interesting to me, though, around this, Dom, is that streaming, I mean, you know, nothing like a good pandemic to help your business grow and focus an opportunity. I mean, who knew that that was going to come out of it? That was the funny thing about the whole pandemic. I remember sitting at board meetings and having some marketers kind of like hide their heads a little bit and sort of look down and say, well, our business is actually doing pretty well. You know, so there were some people who benefited during it was an otherwise sort of, you know, catastrophic time, I think, for the world. But a question for you is, would you know the stats about what's happened to streaming and the shift in behavior from, you know, broadcast? I don't know, either cord cutting kind of dynamics, one way to look at that, or just the sort of shift in time spent? What has happened over the last three, four years? I mean, you, you've seen a continued shift in time spent to streaming. With each passing quarter, I think the share of uh, television minutes consumed by streaming is growing. That being said, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that linear, you know, traditional linear television is still a monster in terms of overall size. And then I think the other thing that's important, especially for a company like ours that sits in both places is 
you know, streaming is also a hugely important driver of growth for those traditional broadcast and cable shows. I mean, within Paramount Plus and mm. also for Pluto TV, we have current seasons of CBS broadcast content. We have it in Paramount Plus next day, as well as the back seasons. And so things that are huge for CBS, like NCIS or Survivor, or there's past season, uh, Fire Country, are also huge within Paramount Plus. You know, and we partnered this past year with our colleagues over at CBS to really try to make Fire Country a priority. And it was a huge hit for CBS on broadcast. And then it was the number one season of a CBS broadcast show for us last year in the service. So it was just a hit across the board. So I do think while we talk about streaming and share of time in the space, when we think about it, streaming versus television, I also think that for us, it's really around how do we, again, take advantage of our broad distribution and make these shows and movies as broad as possible. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah, also good synergy with that. And you're right. I've often talked about this, you know, the MMA, when we used to be a little more focused on mobile, we did a series of studies in the sort of mid-teens from probably 2013, 2012, 13, until probably 2017, 18. But we were looking at what would be a rational mix. What was the optimized mix of market? Now, look, and I was looking to understand what mobile was doing, especially with the infusion of data and targeting and the personalization of that device as a focus. Here's the stat, though, that, and we talked about this at the time, so I have no incentive to give this stat. I'm not supporting anybody <laughs> in the entity part of the industry when I say this. So just to be clear, I have no bias here. Linear television in the studies that we looked at, linear broadcast, untargeted, undated, infused linear television should have been around 45 to 65% of a mix. And again, that's as little as six, seven years ago, which is not long time, but not that long ago to have had a dramatic shift. And what it told me, which is very funny because you would hear at a, this is where the press I think gets me, you know, you just, you really can't trust what you read sometimes. You really have to do the research and know what you're talking about. The media would come out every year and they would talk, and I'm sure it was plants by the media agencies, <laughs> you know, television's getting too expensive. And it's like, no, if you're 45 to 65% mix, you have audience and you're the deal of the century. It was underpriced. No matter what pricing went up, it was underpriced. But you never heard that. You never heard that go on unless you did the work. So No, you, you didn't. But I remember the um, legendary uh, head of research for CBS for many years, Dave Poltrack. Dave Poltrack, famous, uh, an icon. Icon yes. for sure. And, and he was a great person to partner with, you know, over the years I've been at the company. And, you know, I think he had done a lot of studies. And I think, you know, one of the things, and this is probably maybe a little bit longer, further back than some of the dates you're talking about, but, you know, brands that had stopped spending on linear television saw a huge hit in their sales yeah. and came back to TV. And I think that was something that our linear teams definitely used to help in their sales efforts at that time. I remember the studies, and you're right, broadcast television is often used as sort of the branding, the base brand. I'm an ex-agency media guy. I don't know if you knew that, but I spend hundreds of millions of dollars, Baffin Procter & Gamble and others. And yeah, television broadcast was sort of the base uh, for that. What I didn't understand at the time, but I've been more recently in some work we've doing too, I am shocked at the degree to which those who are favorable to a brand, they churn the degradation in that favorable over time. I just saw some stats yesterday my team was showing me, and it's kind of shocking, which would be to that point, you have to stay in front of consumers. We're short memory beasts, I guess, at some level. I don't know. I think it's just like, it's all important. Right? You have to be everywhere the consumer is. I don't think you can ignore any platform, whether that's linear mm -hmm. television or mm -hmm. it, it'd be like not investing in organic and paid social media. I mean, you have to be where the customers are. And so I think every platform 
is critical. And then also, I think for each, depending on what you're marketing and what your product is, I think your mix will shift a bit, right? Like, so for example, in streaming, being in television is really important. We want to reach entertainment fans. We want to reach sports fans. We have an amazing sports offering in the service, including, I think, two really marquee properties with the NFL on CBS, including the Super Bowl this year. We'll be streaming in Paramount+. Plus. And then from a soccer perspective, we have the exclusive rights for really the most prestigious club tournament in the world, the UEFA Champions League. And so being in those environments is super important for us. And then, as you might imagine, as a streaming business, also making sure you're really present on connected devices and smart televisions. Being in front of the consumer when they're making a decision of what to watch that night is really critical for brands like ours. Hey, let me ask you another question. I hadn't thought about asking this in advance, so I, I didn't give you this one. So, you know, sorry, not a setup question. I just thought of it. You know what you're also competing with too now, funny enough, which didn't exist four or five years ago, are short form video in the case of Facebook's Reels or in particular TikTok. Yep. How do you guys look at that sort of short form competition for people's attention to video content at the broadest way? I mean, I think you've got to look at it. There's two sides of the coin. Of course, On the challenge side, it's more competition for time, right? I mean, ultimately, we're in entertainment or gaming, you know, we're competing for users' time and attention. Yes. Uh, And so, obviously, engagement there certainly takes away from hours they have left to watch, you know, scripted television and movies, et cetera. But I also think the other side of that coin is it's a massive opportunity. I mentioned sort of our investment engaging fans and fandoms in social. And so, I do think bringing your best to engage on those platforms with content that feels native and authentic to those platforms is a great opportunity for our brand and our content. You're not here to announce uh, Paramount Shorts today, right? That's not coming out? No, we don't have that to announce today. <laughs> okay, good, good. That was a bit, you would have shocked me if you'd actually said just that. <laughs> okay, Dom, let's get into the big question, the whole thing around building better CMOs and the focus of what this podcast tries to always go after. And by the way, I should have set this up, right? You come from finance, right? You were a finance guy, Richard, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Perfect background for doing performance-oriented marketing, certainly. And you broaden your brand guy too now. So I know that some of that history. So, but as you look out in your experience and exposure, what do you think marketing marketers don't necessarily get? What do you think either they get wrong? What do they maybe not fully understand? What do you think they would be, you know, if you were to, you know, you give your teams maybe advice, like what do you look at given your own personal perspective on things? What I would say is, and I don't think it's necessarily what we they don't get right or totally understand, but I do think, especially as it pertains to what we do in entertainment and streaming, I think a lot of times all the focus is really on these like hero flashy campaign assets, like your big trailer and your key art, which by the way are hugely important. Of course, like they, they've got to be exceptionally strong, but you know they're really the only the tip of the iceberg. And there's so much that happens below the waterline or the surface level, if you will, in terms of all of the testing and the insights that go into how effective those assets are. The creative variety you need both in just a range of assets, but also variations of copy, just the hundreds of assets you need to sort of fulfill and, and being able to be on every platform like we've talked about, as well as just everything that happens in managing the customer lifecycle as part of that process. There's just so much, I mean, we can go on for a while, but there's just so much that goes into successfully building and managing and executing a campaign that you don't necessarily see beyond those flashing moments, but they're really, I think, the key in success or failure is being and executing from top to bottom. So taking that for a moment then, I think what your point kind of is, and you and I talked a little bit about this then, is that do you think people get attracted to marketing 
thinking about their creative brains and the fun and excitement of producing a very visually stimulated, engaging, often, you know, there's a big focus in marketing around emotionally driven ads or emotionally evoking ads, I should say, and communications. And that would suggest it's coming from the heart. It's coming from an intuition rather than sort of a science. So you're kind of suggesting they just they don't understand how hard that is to get to even get to that point, which is hard. I've done I've done creative. I've worked in enough creative agencies. It's hard. You got to have a strong strategy to get to good creative ads. Yeah. Or is it all the background work that you think too that they just sort of underestimate or underappreciate? I think it's just like people I think are coming at marketing from a lot of different directions, and I think it's really having the full appreciation that it takes all of the various skills and piece parts of a campaign to be successful, not just that sort of big flashy piece. But by the way, those trailers, I mean, the the work and the creativity to pull together a great trailer, I mean, the impact, and you talked about the emotion, the impact and ability to connect with somebody emotionally with a well-executed trailer, there's a huge difference when that's done with excellence versus not, right? So that's uh, hugely important. But if you're not placing that trailer in the right places, you're not giving it the right fuel to get viewed by folks, like then you're also letting it down. And that's why I'm talking about everything comes together. It's like kind of like if you're baking a pie, all of the ingredients are critically important to that pie tasting good. Right. It's not just the cherries, right? By the way, I have not done trailers. Is there a science to trailers? I think there is a science to it, but the creation of a trailer, I think, is far more art. I think the science comes in in the research and the consumer insights that we pull from those trailers, right? Identifying like who are the audience segments that we think this program will speak to and designing sort of tests to understand like how each of those different audience segments, as well as your broad general entertainment audience, responds. And I think that's where the the science comes in. And I think we're, we're trying to evolve a little bit the classic art and science, which I think is still spot on. And part of that art, uh, to be honest, is understanding what the data is telling you, what are the insights that matter most. And so thinking a lot of it about, you know, from a perspective of data and emotion, one of the things that I love about marketing is just trying to understand the audiences, their need states, what's going to resonate, how to connect with audiences, what, what we're doing in marketing. I find that that's so much fun as part of our work. We used to say in the agency business many years ago, when you could say things like this, advertising is the most fun you could have with your clothes on. I can't say that <laughs> <Nope>. anymore, <laughs> but that was, I've just put it into a podcast. So there you have it. Listen, Dom, do you have an example of a trailer that, you know, that maybe the research told you to go one direction on it, which was maybe counter, felt somewhat counterintuitive I mean, I've seen some of this stuff in the press where they're like, well, you think this is the viewer, but you're really attracting this. And so the trailer was developed for this audience in this way. Well, I think, yes. I think all the time, you know, listen, a lot of times it's really nice and validating. You kind of put a couple of trailers or a couple of pieces of art and testing. And, you know, you've been doing this for long enough. You have a feeling of like what you're going to hear back. And so a lot of times, you know, you're going to get validation of where you were, but a lot of other times you're going to get unique insights, things that you hadn't considered in the way people were going to respond or moments in the trailer where sort of interest level drops off. So you can kind of say, hey, that bite did not work there. And so I do think it's always good to get the validation and it's always important to get sort of the insights of things you didn't anticipate so that you can pivot and try to improve on that asset before you sort of put it out in the world. So I think that's where the research really helps. I think we made the joke about the one last password, you're welcome. 
And we loved it. We thought it was funny, but at the same time, we weren't sure how consumers were going to respond. And so that was one where it could have gone either way. And then we got the testing back and consumers loved it. So we put that in market. But if we had gotten back feedback where it came off as snarky or the joke didn't land that we were having, because one of the things about our brand is we like to be down to earth. We don't want to take ourselves too seriously on the Paramount Plus side. And so we were coming at it with that sort of brand voice, but we wanted to make sure it translated that way to consumers and audiences. Hey, I'm curious, do you have a positioning for the role of the different services and how they do present themselves? Or So if Paramount Plus is down to earth, oh, by the way, I worked on Showtime many years ago, many years ago. They used to say it was, and, and if, this, if this needs to be cut, you'll let us know later. They used to say it's adult with a small a was the way that Showtime was explained when we were doing the business. This is 25 years ago. We were doing the positioning <laughs> work for it. Though. Yeah. So down to earth is sort of the uh, dynamic you said of Paramount Plus. But what about some of the other services and how do you position yourselves in that competitive environment? Yeah, I think on the P plus side, it's definitely that sort of down to earth tone. I think we lean into humor a ton. I mean, we've been doing our mountain of entertainment spots for a few years, starting with the Super Bowl campaign, the journey to the peak to announce the new branding of the service. Consumer feedback on those has always been awesome. Fans really love seeing the unexpected mix of characters and talent. And then we bring a lot of humor to those that we personally have had a lot of fun creating. And I think that helps our brand stand out, you know, to really have those live action spots that resonate with consumers and supplement all of the amazing content-led spots, you know, our trailers and our brand cut spots that are in market. I do think that combo and sort of the brand voice does help Paramount Plus stand out in the streaming marketplace. And then on the Pluto TV side, you know, Pluto's also been a scrappy brand over the years and feel like, you know, a lot of humor there, a lot of quirkiness. And I think we've had a lot of fun with that brand as well. And I'm really excited on where we take it next. Okay, so let me ask you the big controversy out there since we're talking about your brands and I'm going to leverage some of the others. HBO Max versus Max. A lot of controversy out there on that name change. Comment? Yeah, listen, I can see a lot of what went into that. I, I'd say I like not having to compete directly against the HBO brand, but I do also <laughs> understand that like Max allows it to be broader and also preserves what HBO has always stood for in terms of its programming. You know, going back to, to your point on the Showtime brand, I think it has always stood for and represented some of the best edgy and boundary pushing content. And if you think about sort of our programming goals that we've had for Paramount Plus to really be a coast to coast total household product with live sports, news, what we say, a mountain of entertainment with kids and family big uh, temple movies, an amazing scripted programming reality, a full sort of household, whole family product. Showtime really fits in that lane, that edgy sort of boundary pushing content that really rounds it out. And I think together they make a powerful combination. Yeah. Showtime to me is, uh, it's the one place I can next go to find something interesting that I didn't expect or hadn't heard about yet. Yeah. I don't know how they continue to do that. I didn't know it was refreshed that often. I can't really tell, but I'm constantly surprised. And I find myself in there like making, oh, yeah, I do want to see that. Oh, I'd like to see that. You know, like adding it to kind of a list somewhere in some mind. And I don't know that I find that with the other services. So funny enough. Yeah. Listen, I think we've just sort of accelerated that sort of new discovery because we're now putting Showtime content in front of all of the Paramount Plus subscribers, some for the first time. And I think what's really interesting is we've now released two originals, the sixth season of The Shy, mm -hmm. which has been incredibly- Long-standing hit. Yeah. Long-standing hit, a very engaged fan base, great stories. And that show had its biggest premiere 
ever and is doing really good work. And one of the things that I'm seeing, you know, in the Paramount Plus app is that half of the people that are streaming it thus far were existing Paramount Plus subscribers. So we're pulling in the Showtime audience and then also exposing it for the first time to Paramount Plus subs. And we're doing the same thing with the latest season of Billions. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. We love Billions. Love yes. Billions. Really, one of the best shows ever. And Axe is back this season, the final season. So, if- Oh, wait, is Axe back? That's right. You know, it's funny. Yeah, so you, you were paying attention to your research. You saw I drifted off. I just, without Axe, it just wasn't that... Good for him. I think you're going to like season seven. Okay, okay. I'm in. I'm in. When does that go? We should tell. I'm not. You and I are not doing promos, but when does that start? When's it kick off? Uh, it just debuted, okay. so you're uh, you're just good, in time. Good, good, good. Okay, everybody. Do if you and if you haven't seen Billions, you really. I'm constantly surprised when I find people haven't seen it. Like that's just nuts. It's really some of the best television there's ever been. Just compelling. The characters are great. Love it all. Yes, it's a great show. And in fact, you and I'll come back and talk a little bit about Wendy here, that character in there a little bit. I think in our next, next part <laughs> of our conversation right. here, if I remember right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about some of this below the line that you're having to do and some of that, what people don't kind of see. So how can we approach that? We could take like, you know, if you're producing a campaign for some particular thesis, maybe talk about the complexity of having to create the multitude of assets, whether it be sizes, channels, and everything that you find today, or maybe it's around sort of some of the complexity around measurement. I mean, I mean, I got to tell you, I'm an expert in a lot of those areas and I don't know how you guys do it nowadays. I think the biggest thing in terms of how we do it is we are lucky to have a team with folks that have deep expertise and experience in those areas. You know, we run, for example, within our team, our own trading desk, so to speak. We've got programmatic traders that are doing all of our performance-based programmatic buys. We handle all of our own uh, SEM work, both from uh, the copy, the assets, the buying and bidding itself. We're managing uh, all of our social paid campaigns. So really like those three things, like within a performance-based buying agency within our team that also oversees our data enablement, all those segments and sort of just the complexity of those campaigns, the number of line items, the number of creatives is incredible. And obviously, you know, the more you can automate, the more you can lean into sort of machine learning tools and AI to help customize their, the more successful results you can drive. And so that's definitely a huge area. And I think one we've been investing in for over a decade within our group and feel like that's a best in class bunch that definitely gives us a competitive edge. But you go to the the flip side of it and you think about all of the creatives working on the trailers and the art, they're thinking about all the nuances of how this campaign comes to life, including how your art is going to manifest itself in a 300 by 250 or what it's going to look like in certain social units, really trying to think about how things size up and down and making sure that we're optimizing for all of that in the creation of the original asset. So all the adaptations have already had thoughts around like how it's going to work in terms of how you go up and down. Because if you only optimize for like that large billboard format that we all see on our drives, then you're going to potentially miss the mark when you try to sort of bring that to all the places a campaign's going to go. I think it's kind of funny you sort of mentioned that because I think that people don't recognize the constraints that there are in marketing. I mean, I, I was just having a conversation with the exec committee of the North America board yesterday. And we were talking about how, you know, everybody in the C-suite, all your peers, I'm assuming there at, <laughs> at, Paramount, at Paramount, you know, they all do marketing as a side hustle. I mean, you guys are a media company, so maybe it's more, I don't know if it's more pronounced or less pronounced. I'm assuming <laughs> Dart Tresdor said it at an MMA event, you know, she said that was she, was she was up against when she was at Peloton. Everybody did marketing as a side hustle. But it really, you have to get so many parts of it right to make it all work that people just don't appreciate how hard that is to do, I think. I think that that's right. And I think we've definitely taken it on internally within our teams to 
try to evangelize sort of all that goes into what we're doing. And I think that that has helped because we do partner a lot with the studio and, and network marketing teams. And I think over the past few years, there's been a great fluency between the teams around what's needed for streaming campaigns and you know when their content comes to the service how can they do things on their end that sort of helps set it up for success in terms of assets so i do think you know with each passing day we continue to sort of drive that forward as everybody while they're experts at what they do day to day they're also really building around the company we're building a uh, a streaming mindset let's take a quick break we'll be right back after this with dominic demiglio look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This is Building Better CMOs. Let's get back to my conversation with Dominic Demiglio, the head of marketing data at Paramount Streaming. How big is the marketing team for the streaming division? How big is the marketing team? A couple hundred people that we have. I mean, I don't think it's the biggest marketing team, uh, you know, out there. I know you won't disclose the budget. I know everybody <laughs> is probably waiting for me to ask you that question. You're not going to tell me. But uh, yeah, for the budget, you have 200 is not a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the other thing I would say, too, on the budget is like, you know, again, there's others in, in the streaming market that, you know, I think that they are able to spend a ton more. But I also think it's still formidable. I mean, I think we're out there with campaigns that are able to break through. Why do you think you're able to beat some of those with maybe our allegedly bigger budgets? You'd love to think that, you know, hey, we're just optimizing our campaigns better. But I think the reality also is just it goes back to... You know, something we talked about earlier, I think it's this one paramount mindset that we're taking advantage of all our assets. Let's take a theatrical title that comes to Paramount Plus. When that movie's come into theaters, it gets a campaign from best in class marketing team over at Paramount Pictures. They do amazing work. And so they're creating all the awareness and excitement to support the theatrical window. And then at a fast follow from there, typically we do a home entertainment window for probably say two weeks where you can buy the movie or rent it at a premium VOD, you know, like at a $20, $25 price point for those things. So that's in there for a couple of weeks and they do another little marketing push at that moment. And then we come in with our campaign and we're taking the benefit. We usually around the 45 day mark, we're getting the benefit of all of the work that came before from those campaigns, including the temple theatrical campaigns are really drafting off of that. And so we can be highly strategic and very efficient in terms of how we help drive home conversions from that. Standing on the shoulders of giants in some regards, you know, the, you've got the work in advance to sort of how you're going to sort of work Absolutely. that out. Hey, let's go back to, you mentioned something there and I've been remiss now here to have not come back to it in four or five minutes, three minutes, whatever it's been, AI. So, Dom, talk to me a little about applying AI. And I think, listen, the board, um, we're going to have a big board meeting come up here very shortly. And I will be telling you all about an AI coalition that we're about to launch by the time this podcast goes live. It may have already launched. But tell me how Paramount Plus is looking at that, you and your team. For sure. And just speaking of the MMA, I'm also excited to be a part of the AI committee and, you know, and where we're going to take that work. 
Yeah. We have such an opportunity to lead the industry into a whole new level of greatness. Yeah. I'm beyond ecstatic about this. Likewise. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, and I was just talking to our CTO. I mean, I talk to our corporate CTO all the time about this. Like I think we are trying to be forward thinking. I think, you know, there's also a couple of ways like to think about it. You know, I think there's been what a I guess people are calling now traditional or core AI, which is like the machine learning that we've really been deploying, frankly, for years, whether it's dynamic optimization of creative and copy, all of the machine learning that goes into our recommendation engines and our customer journey management, that we're leveraging that. But I do think, obviously, just a game-changing, maybe an understatement era that's sort of been introduced with generative AI. And so Gen AI, and I think we're Frankly, I think still so early days. I think we're doing a lot of learning, but there's tons of opportunity. I certainly think of on the marketing and the creation side of what we're doing as well as optimization. And really, we've got a lot of folks on the team that are trying to push that ball forward and want to be evangelists and experts. So again, early days, but I think we're certainly going to be pushing forward and trying to understand how to best harness the benefits and power of Gen AI in what we do in both marketing and data. Well, I mean, you know, because you've been in the board meetings, but we found we're doing this consortium of AI personalization. Probably the most powerful thing I've seen that's so, at many levels, unbelievably simple. Applying AI is still complicated. Like, how do you even get your agency to write a creative brief against, you know, when you want multiple ad units? And you're right, nobody's doing generative AI for creative yet. (laughs) None of us has much control over corporations to pull that kind of stunt yet. But it's incredible. I mean, we went into that consortium and we were trying to just for the audience, we were doing um, personalization of creative, taking many creative assets, reconfiguring them on the fly, and then matching them up against hundreds of thousands of contextual opportunities to see if we could personalize based on context. It was kind of done in the light of we were expecting to lose cookies when we were first looking at this. And we went into it and we told you all, you know, you remember at the board, maybe we told you like this, and we'll probably look at plus 50%, give or take a little bit gains in marketing performance. And now that we find out the gains can be any, we've seen anywhere from 137% for ADT to 259% for Kroger's. It's crazy. I never would have expected that. It's just astonishing. We also, and I won't name names on this one, but one of the brands got zero. But we understand you, you learn as much from a failure as you do others. So I love that data point too, because it guides us. And by the way, it was not enough personalization was the issue there. Personalization matters. Well, I always thought it was AI's contextual placement that did it. And that's what we've, we've done that kind of thing for years, good placement. But this, you know, when you add, add personalization to it, it changes everything. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and listen, I think you're speaking to lots of different audiences, especially when you're yeah. thinking about broad-based entertainment, but even sort of a big blockbuster movie or a temple series that's very broad and cuts across audience segments. I think there's still such opportunity to to find those things that are going to allow different sub-segments of that audience to connect with that content because there is, it's not a one-size-fits-all. I think that's where both the upfront research that we do as well as the ability to sort of optimize your creative as the campaign gets going is a very powerful combination. Yeah, tell me. And listen, at some level too, you know, I, I have often found it, it's offensive sometimes what we do with ads and the degree to which we run the same ad in the same pod or that we don't target ads. I mean, I don't need to see ads for so many products that I'm just never going to be in the customer set. I've often said that the problem with advertising is, is that we were teaching consumers to ignore advertising because we're not making it relevant. So it just behooves us to get much better as an industry out of respect to consumers, whether they think they want to see ads or not, or they want to understand the trade-off here is that, you know, it's ads for free content. Everybody let's remember what's going on. doesn't mean we have to be rude about it. No, I'd agree. I mean, I look at that from two ways. Obviously, the classic reach and frequency management is important, but it also goes back to something I mentioned earlier, which is 
customizing your creative for the platform you're on. So like if somebody is engaging with you on yeah. YouTube shorts or TikTok, they're actually yeah. not getting the exact same thing. Yeah. Listen, I think about that from all angles, you know, as part of my role when I was the head of operations for the CBS Interactive business for years, ad operations and ad experience were part of my remit. And I still oversee sort of the ad experience component because it's part of the customer experience. And one of the things that we always prided ourselves on was we were really wanted to replicate the ad experience that you saw on broadcast television. You didn't see the same ads. You didn't have the same categories in a pod. The number of repeat ads, even within an hour long episode was managed. And so we really tried to deliver a truly phenomenal user experience because frankly, when you're streaming a full episode of content, the ad experience is part of your point of view of how well that content played. And so if you get a poor ad experience, it's going to take away from the user satisfaction. And so that's just something we can have from a user perspective. And certainly you want to make sure we're creating best in class ad environment for our advertisers. Yep. Okay. So listen, let's shift here. You know, you kind of set us up for this a little bit earlier. We'll come back to it. So, you know, you and I had a really interesting conversation before on this, not to put too much pressure on, on either one of us, but the next part I always like to kind of just acknowledge is not just the easy parts of the job, but sometimes the challenging parts of it. Like I said, you know, what do marketers need to be better at? So my next area here is, listen, Dom, you went from a finance guy to, you know, an EVP CMO. And EVP is a pretty big title in every company in the land. And you're playing with some of the best and smartest and most driven people within the entertainment business and within your own company. It's not necessarily easy to get there, and it's not even easy to be successful within those environments. I just saw there was a reshuffling of one of the big board member companies, exec teams, just today in the Wall Street Journal. Were you always driven to kind of have a senior executive position? Is that where you were oriented? Were you always driven to do that? And how do you think you successfully got to the role you did. And by the way, just put that in kind of, you've been in Paramount a long time, right? 20 plus years? Yes. I started at what was CBS Digital Media in 2005. So coming on 18 years here at the company in one form or another. Yeah. And as you noted before, I did start in finance. I was always interested in sort of operations. I grew up in a small business. My dad came over from Italy and had a landscaping business with my uncle. You know, it was my first job. And you learn something when you're working for a small business, family-owned business, because you really care for it in that way. And I think one of the things that has served me well in my career is wherever I'm working, I kind of bring that small business mentality, just in terms of about thinking about what's best for the overall business. And you know, we've been in an industry that's been in transformation for quite some time. And I've worked in, especially at my time at this company, I've always worked in digital and I've been working in streaming for virtually the whole time. And as part of that, we knew that we needed to be innovative for the future of the company, but also as we were also helping be disruptive in the right ways that we were thinking about things from an ecosystem perspective. So I've always, anything we did in those days, whether it's a new distribution model or, or whatever, even when we launched what was uh, the predecessor to Paramount Plus, CBS All Access, we did so in the context of like, what was this going to mean for the company in the aggregate, right? Like, hey, we can make this thing successful, but if we're pulling people from another place, is it going to be accretive? And that that's a mindset we've always taken. And I think that that's what served us well as we've sort of moved to Paramount Plus and how we execute with Pluto TV. I think that both of these businesses are truly accretive to the overall Paramount global ecosystem. And we have that mindset as a team. And then the other thing is, you know, I've had really good mentors. It was not a secret that I'd wanted to move to operations and strategy and help run businesses. And so I had a number of good mentors along the way from my first boss at the company, the CFO 
of our business, Jed Capsus, to, you know, when we merged with CNET, another guy, uh, Xander Laurie was a huge mentor of mine. Oh, I love Xander Laurie. I know him well from, from uh, CNET. Yeah. yeah. He helped set me on the path towards my first crack at an operations role. He's a really good dude and was a great mentor. And then I got a chance to work for Anthony Suhu, who had come over from his startup and gave me my first shot in what was the entertainment and lifestyle group. And that's the team that's now this Paramount Plus team that I started with just a handful of analysts. And those handful of analysts are now the sort of Paramount Plus and Pluto TV data and insights group. You know, some of that obviously came. Pluto team also had its own data team that sort of plugged in, but now it's that combined group. And then when we were launching CBS All Access, we, I did the partner marketing. I was doing distribution like our home entertainment business and our distribution partner marketing for our ad-supported distribution. And so I got tapped to build the marketing team for All Access. And that's the thing we built from the ground up that's now this Paramount Plus team. And now I'm fortunate enough to sit across both Paramount Plus and Pluto TV. And we just have top-notch talent and leadership. That's the other piece. It's your own hard work. It's the mentors that open the doors for you. And I would say the last couple I'd be remiss not to mention is I got a chance you know, for many years to work with Mark Debevoise and Jim Lanzone that were incredibly influential in my career. Now I'm having the chance to work with Tom Ryan. It's just an incredible entrepreneur and leader. And so I've been really lucky on the leadership side and the mentorship side, and then also have been really lucky to get to work with great teams and great colleagues. So th those are kind of the ingredients you need. Yeah, Mark's crazy brilliant. He's the nicest guy in the world, but crazy smart. I've talked to him, it's like, oh my God. And listen, I get to work with some pretty smart people. So when if I'm calling out somebody, it, there's a real difference there. And Lanzone's amazing. I mean, he's been around for years. He comes out of the whole CNET group too, doesn't he? Isn't Jim Lanzone from there or just friends of? He's a startup guy. Yeah. He had a startup clicker that uh, was acquired by CBS Interactive to bring Jim on as the leader. Okay. I attribute a lot, a lot of these guys, Xander and others I knew through Shelby Bonney, who was the founder CEO of CNET, yeah. who's I just think one of the men amongst men to me, one of the greatest people I've ever met. Okay. So listen, so here's the deal. Dominic, here's what I get. So part of it is that you are embedded in sort of a caring for the business that not most people get at some level, right? And also too, when you work in a small business, you realize that your effort matters. I notice this a lot with big corporate people is that they just don't kind of get that what they do makes a real difference in a small business. Mm -hmm. I think it's a disservice for people from large corporate America. So you got that. You work with great people. And I suspect also too, Don, for whatever reason, they've treated you well, but also you've stayed in there with them and delivered and they trust you to do what needs to be done. And I think a lot of people, they don't appreciate that, I guess, at some level, like that sense of trust. Yeah. Well, and it's something you've got to earn over time, right? I, I built trust in sort of me and sort of my abilities to then give comfort in offering me new opportunities and maybe things I hadn't tried before. Mm-hmm. And so building that trust, I think, is immensely important. But then going back to what you said before, in terms of a lot of people in big companies not understanding their contributions matter. I mean, but I think that's such a critical part of management. I mean, it's all of our jobs as managers to ensure that our teams understand what they do matters and making sure they're getting feedback when they're making an impact. And also that we're creating a space that they feel like they can try things and fail and make mistakes and that we're creating that room as well to foster innovation. So I do think that a lot of that you know falls onto management. And I do think at the company here, starting with our CEO, Bob Backish, I mean, I think he sets that environment up around the company. And I also get the sense that our brand presidents and chief content officers within their studios do the same. 
Don, do you think it's maybe some part of setting an example? Is it setting under KPIs with people? Is it sort of being, I don't know, is it a tone or direction or input or reflection feedback you give that you think makes a difference? I would say I think it's all the above. I mean, certainly any leader, we need to lead by example. It's you know, the classic, if you're a parent, it's hard to tell your kids, do as I say, not as I do, because they can't help see but what you do. So I do think leading by example is really an important element. I think leading, for me personally, what has worked, leading with empathy and really trying to understand people. We talked about the emotion and understanding audiences. Well, I think as a manager, trying to understand your team, your team members, where they're coming from, sort of what their experiences have been, and taking that into account in the way you try to lead them and guide them, I think is really important. And I think the same goes for as you cross-collaborate across a big company or with external partners. You know, trying to understand those elements, I think, are really important to building successful relationships and outcomes. What does it mean to lead with empathy? I think for me, it's trying to understand where people are coming from, what's motivating them, trying to be understanding when things go wrong. Listen, we all make mistakes. We all have our bad days and trying to be understanding of those types of things and to help give people space to really bring their best work to the table. I think some managers are a little distrusting that people are really showing up to do their best work. I don't hear that in your, what you're saying. I mean, maybe I just, I've been blessed. I think we've got a team, even as it's scaled over the years, We've really had this sort of like down to earth joke. Uh, we call it the GSD sort of mentality, but get shit done. Nobody's too big for any task. Everybody's willing to roll up their sleeves and help someone out. And so some of that I think has also helped because we've kind of latched onto that mantra that, you know, we're really all here to get things done, try to solve problems. Like I said, we're going to make mistakes. It's how we respond in those moments that matter most. We actually did t-shirts a number of years ago for one of my companies. And it was basically that idea was get shit done. Yeah. Yeah, because if you don't get stuff done, and by the way, I think what people don't appreciate too sometimes is how hard it is to get things done. Yeah. There's so many distractions, whether it be from your own head, from the million other things, the emails that are caught, the barrage of text messages that I get nowadays or Slack messages or anything else that's coming in. Oh my God, it's just kind of unrelenting. And I'm sort of lucky because I have a team now who watches a lot of that stuff for me. So I don't personally have to do it with the immediacy like I used to, but it's almost, it feels like it's really hard for almost maybe anybody to be really successful. I don't know, maybe. Well, I mean, I think that's another component of leadership. I think part of what I see my job and the leaders on my team's jobs to be is prioritizing, helping prioritize. And so you know, bringing order to all of that noise, because you're right. I mean, there's just so much coming in at, at any given moment. And then the other thing I tell people all the time is like, things are going to go wrong. Like our plans aren't going to go according to plan. And again, it's, you know, how do we innovate our way? How do we problem solve our way around those things? I think those are critical elements of being successful. Funny, it feels like the kind of work at home thing that's become such a popular flashpoint, I guess, at some level between uh, employer and employee of the last few years. I think that's born out of a little bit of mistrust or that we don't create the systems or the processes to really support people to be focused. I mean, you know, we know people are still getting distracted. I personally don't like to work from home because I find a distraction. I don't need to deal with the dishwasher repair if I can help it. So I, I don't. But others either have to through circumstances or desire to because of commute and it's better optimal for them. So I, I get that. That's fine. Yeah. But then, you know, are we really helping to support them to be able to do their best work when they're isolated alone in their homes? I don't know. That feels tough. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's tough. We are in the office a couple of days a week and I think that's helpful and I consistently get feedback, you know, when we get the teams together for events and, you know, all hands are just even doing more and more meetings in person. I think that there is an important balance of being connected to your colleagues. But, you know, again, I think 
it puts a lot of pressure on managers, like your direct manager to really understand like how productive you are being. But I do say like, I think by and large, we're seeing people really lean into work from home and the flexibility that it provides so that like if in the middle of the day, you have to pick your kid up from school, that you have the time to do that, that you wouldn't be able to do if you were say in the city. Yeah. But then we know you're putting in some extra time at the end of the day, you know? So I think that flexibility is something that's immensely valuable. Hey, Dom, you're a, your wife's a psychologist. Is that right? I yes, don't know that's what right. Title. Yeah, yes. She's a psychologist, doctor of psychology, and she does clinical therapy. But she, uh, one of the things that, you know, I mentioned to you that I find fascinating, she does neuropsych evaluation. So like if you need your kid to have an IQ test or they potentially have learning challenges or a learning disorder or just need to be evaluated for more time on tests and those types of things, she does that and works with families. And it's really fascinating work. Yeah, I would think so. And you certainly would feel a strong sense of really being able to be helpful to people. I'm not sure everybody accepts help. That's a different story. But the opportunity at least presents you. I don't know if you talked to her much about the business or people. Listen, you know, I heard somebody say one time, I heard somebody say, they go, life is just about relationships and work. And by the way, work, just about relationships. <laughs> I thought it was a very funny way to put it. Like, okay, I get it. I got it. I hear the message. One thing that matters. So, you know, relationships are difficult. People have different goals. They have different agendas. They have different upbringings. I mean, a lot of things come in there, but different motivations. They got different life circumstances at the moment. You know, I don't know. Does your wife help you? Do you keep that separate? I don't know. Where I always find it helpful is just like, I've always been fascinated with human psychology and sociology. And I think we have great philosophical conversations. I do think that like just what she does has helped me be better at what I do. I, like I said before, as a manager and, and as I collaborate, I, I really try to understand people, what's motivating them, what they've been through and why they may be showing up in a certain way. And I, I think that hopefully that allows me to connect better. And then ultimately, to your point, you know, ladders back to building good and longstanding relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, listen, I mentioned it earlier. I tell I come back to it. So billions of Wendy, <laughs> don't know the Wendy character. I would love to have, I mean, listen, I've kind of got that now. I have a PhD, I'm Harvard psychologist, trained in organizational psych. Mm -hmm. And he is an independent on retainer for employees of the MMA. And I will tell you, the number of people I tell that I've got a shrink on retainer is shocking. People are always surprised when I say that. And I'm surprised that so many of them are surprised. Not at all, but um. And then my head of people here has a master's from Columbia in psychology for those reasons. Because I think that um, I think work's complicated. I think it's hard to show up and try to do your best work in an onslaught of life at some level. I don't know. I think we definitely have org design. And I think, I believe some of those folks are org psychology or have an org psychology background as well. And those are incredible resources. But I also think just for us at the day-to-day, -day, two things that really serve us well is our division has this notion of HR business partners. Mm, yeah. And our HRBPs, it's not just we're going to HR because like there's some kind of issue. They truly are advisors. And my HRBPs are invaluable to what we try to do and how we run the team and build the team and foster the team. And then I also have uh, someone who's been working with me for a long time. For the last two years, she's been in a chief of staff role for the team, which also I find to be immensely valuable. Really helps keep a finger on the pulse of the team. And I think we've benefited a ton from the creation of that role. Being a boss is a funny role. You're the only one who sees the big picture and yet you don't see all that's going on. It's very hard, but I do think it isn't coming upon you to try to do your best to sort of keep on top of all facets of what the team is going through. And then knowing where to sort of lean in and try to help is, is important. I think for me, I always look to see like, what can I do? I really want people to be able to do amazing work not have to work all the time. That's a different point. 
to really be able to do, it does require effort. So I'm not so sure the time isn't a part of that sometimes, but the, to be able to do amazing work, because I think that's what you feel good about. That's what you feel proud about. That's what either builds confidence or self-esteem. And I don't think we value that enough sometimes. I feel like people have a different orientation about what creates value at work or we get off distracted. We think that giving them snacks is what's going to make them happy. And I'm like, yeah, it's a nice showy thing, but it doesn't really, I don't think it really helps people to feel really great about their jobs. No, it's definitely a nice thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, snacks and some cold brew go a long way, but I think you got to bring it at every element. You've got to really have a good support system. You got to really manage and help create opportunities for your teams and help them see, again, what we talked about before, see their impact to the business and let them see sort of what paths of potential futures of growth look like within the company and within the team. I think those are obviously super important. The others are kind of just nice to have yeah, you know, yeah, in terms yeah. of like, you know, some of the treats. As I kind of get it, Dom, I think you're downstream from a bunch of really great people who have really shown you how to be a great leader. And I'm not sure everybody gets that, but I would certainly encourage that. Want to do a few like uh, quick lightning round questions here? We'll wrap things up. Yeah, yeah, sure. Ready? Okay. Who in marketing, personal company, do you admire? Can't be anybody at Paramount. You got to leave Paramount out of the question. Anybody's work out there, you go, shit, I wish we'd done that. Ah, I love that. I wonder how they did that. I don't know. Anybody? What I would say is I will start out this way. I will say, listen, th- I'm blessed to work with some amazing marketers within this company at every division. I've got some great partners that I get to work with day in, day out and partner with their teams. But if I'm looking outside of the company, one person that I, you know, I think that I've been watching more and more because they're a, an amazing partner of ours. For the last year, we've been partnered with Walmart Plus and Paramount Plus is now a benefit to all Walmart Plus members. Just got back from spending a few days in Bentonville with the Walmart team. Is that through William White's crew or is that another part of the Walmart? It's both. There's the Walmart Plus team, but the Walmart marketing team rolls into William and spend some time with him as well. And I just think what he's doing from a marketing perspective and how the success that Walmart is having as an overall company, another industry that is continues to be in transformation. I think they're just doing some really great things there. And I think they've been a great partner for us. Yeah, I've known Walmart marketing now through, I think, three or four CMOs. And yes, I agree with you. I think they're a phenomenal team, even beyond William, although William's also great, done a great job. In fact, I'll put a little plug out there that uh, the Global executive, global Board Executive of the MMA has asked William if he would consider being vice chair so that we could move him up the ranks. We're not, we're not convinced him yet. We'll work on it. Okay, well, listen, what's, uh, what do you think is most overhyped in marketing today? I think it's the most under and overhyped thing, but I mean, AI has got to be that thing. Everybody's coming with a pitch around AI technology and tools powered by AI. And I think there's some there, there in some places, but there's also, I think it's ripe with some vaporware. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, the damn ad tech uh, disease here in our business, which is, you know, everybody's whatever the latest thing that mattered the most suddenly. And, you know, they just had come up with that last week in marketing for their company. Yeah, I know. It's kind of annoying. It is a big opportunity, and we agree. Yeah. We agree, we agree. Here's a final one for you. Ready? Yep. What is the one thing? Okay, so maybe, you know, if you want to give some thought, go ahead. What is the one thing someone listening to this, you think, if you were to advise them to be a better CMO, what do you think that might be? One thing that somebody who's listening here can do to be a better CMO. Focus as much as you can on understanding your customer. There's nothing more important, is there? Understand them, see them, personalize to them, as we talked about a little bit have the insight, know what motivates them, understand what's important to them, don't waste their time, be respectful. I think, uh, actually we'll close with this on, change the front screen so I can use a QR code and I don't have to type in the email and password every time, right? Is that it? That's it. Okay. <laughs> By the way, that I mean, the QR code, that, that live activations too, I mean, incredibly valuable to having people be able to engage much easier. Yeah, it's like the oldest thing that's new again. 
QR codes were so overpromoted in the early days of mobile, like they were going to revolutionize everything and nobody adopted them. And now everybody wants them. It's very funny. They just kind of came up out of nowhere and became a big deal. This could be totally wrong, but I do think that the pandemic and going to paperless menus where anytime you went somewhere to get the menu, everybody seemed to learn how to use a QR code. And I have no research on this, so I could be totally wrong. I'll take that. Yeah. You see the source. I said we had to train consumer habits. Change a consumer habit. This is a funny thing about marketing. If you're a marketer, the one thing you really totally understand, I love people who think that marketers can uh, manipulate consumers. Absolutely not. You get reminded again and again <laughs> how little power, influence, and knowledge and experience and exposure you have as a marketer to getting it right with consumers, right? All the time. Oh my God. All the time they prove you wrong. So that's why you got to go back to, you got to listen to the customer and the consumer as best you can. There you go. I got it. I love it. Dom, you're the best. I really appreciate this. And thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. Appreciate you having me. Thanks again to Dominic DeMiglio from Paramount for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the show notes for links to connect with Dominic. And if you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, please visit MMAglobal.com. Or you can attend any one of our 30 conferences in 15 countries where MMA operates. Or if you want, write to me, greg at MMAglobal.com. Now, thank you so much for listening. Tap the link in the show notes to leave us a review. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Building Better CMOs researcher is Zanita Pawlowska. Artwork is by Jason Chase. And a very special thanks to LaSara Smith for making this all happen. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you in two weeks.